It, um, it occurs to me that Jesus was transfigured at the wrong time. He should have waited till he was before Pilate. Are you a king then? Or maybe right before the soldiers hit the nail into his hand would have been a better timing for that. But that is maybe the point. And that, I, I think that might be what we want to talk about now. How Jesus hides his glory. But let me read you a paragraph of Luther. And then we'll, I, I think I promised Q&A, right? For a bit. We have an hour and a half. And or however long I last. Whichever comes first. I think, we'll, I think we can go an hour and a half. Uh, this is uh, this is Luther's commentary on John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Luther says, Thus we also read that when St. Agatha, a girl 14 or 15 years old, was being led to imprisonment and torture. Sometimes, by the way, Luther says 13, sometimes 16. He doesn't. He's not a real detail guy, you know? Like when Luther quotes the Psalms, he'll quote Psalm 67, and it might be Psalm 65 or whatever, but it's probably like the, the whatever was close, the number that was closest on the page, you know, he's like, ah, that's close. Anyway, that makes me feel good. A girl 14 or 15 years old was being led to imprisonment and torture. She went cheerfully and said that she felt as though she were being escorted to a dance. These are surely words of comfort and defiance from a young girl who regards the torment and death to which she is being led as no different from a wedding and an occasion for the greatest joy. This is due to faith, which has averted the eyes from the physical appearance and sensations and has directed them upward to the life beyond. It has concluded what can they accomplish even if they do their worst and afflicted with every misfortune. They only usher me quickly from this misery to Christ in heaven. It is the sole purpose. Ready for this? It is the sole purpose of all the sufferings of Christians to promote our Christian life and to bear fruit for a fuller knowledge and a stronger confession of the word, a more certain hope, and a wider expansion of the kingdom of God. Uh, here insert that Tertullian quote, the seed of the martyrs. No, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The world, to be sure, intends to do us harm, but it really accomplishes no more than what the church sings about the martyrs. Unknowingly, they lead us into eternal joys. Unknowingly and involuntarily, the world leads the Christians through torture and death to eternal joys. Such tortures are nothing else as St. Agatha said, the taking our arms in a friendly way and leading us to heaven as a bride is led to the dance. Whatever harm is done to Christians by the world, God turns back their anger and lets the harm redound to their advantage. And not only to our advantage, but also to the world's advantage. Have you thought about this? You know, for a long time in the church, uh, there was all these conversations about evangelism programs. How are we going to get out there and confess Christ to the world? Well, 
If you're being persecuted, you don't need an evangelism program. They'll drag you in court and ask you what you think. They'll put it on the news for everyone to see. It's great. When you're being persecuted, you don't need a way to get the word out because the word gets out. It's quite wonderful. Okay. What questions so far? So last session we talked about the martyrs and this courage that the martyrs had to, to face persecution and suffering. Any questions or thoughts on that? Are you mad because I didn't tell you those martyr stories before lunch? Carrie says, Brian, why do you always have to tell these stories at dinner time, you know? Let me tell you about Polycarp. Oh boy. So, any questions? Polycarp, oh yes. This is a perfect illustration of that point. Jesus is in the garden, and uh, they, the, he says to all the soldiers gathered there, like rent a mob. He says, uh, "Oh, do you know that you can rent a mob? Have you?" I was just making a joke, but I realized that I, have a, I have a guy at church who has a friend whose business is mob rentals, and. I just, he came to me one day and he says, Pastor, I've got an idea. I want to rent a mob to protest at the ELCA that they are not liberal enough. You know, they're too conservative. And we should do it and we should get the mob to go over there and, say, and the mob could chant about how Luther was anti-Semitic or whatever so that they would end up changing their name from the ELCA. They dropped the Lutheran from their name. This is the whole plan. So he says, do you want to do it? you want to rent a mob? I said, yeah, but, <laughs> but that's because I'm a sinner. <laughs> so we didn't. So, you know, when you see these protests, it's like you can't be sure if it's actually people who are protesting or if it's just the mob rental agency. Anyway, so the, so the rental mob comes up to Jesus, and Jesus says, who are you seeking? And he says, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And it says in the English, I am he or something like that. The word in the Greek is simply... Ego me, I am. The divine word, the divine name. And when Jesus speaks that, they all fall over like bowling pins. And then they get up, you know, you imagine a little more tenuously the second time. And he says, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> and he says the same word, I am key. And they don't fall over. So this is Jesus showing, I mean, Jesus himself says it, look, if I wanted to, I could call to my Father in Heaven and He would send a legion of angels to, to rescue me, but He doesn't. And that's the point. Jesus goes freely to crucifixion. He's not, he's not overcome. I mean, He is, but He lets Himself be overcome. And that's the point of the transfiguration thing. If Jesus wanted to be transfigured in the garden, they would have all run for their lives. If He wanted to be transfigured on the cross, they all would have run for their lives, but he didn't because he, he wanted to be crucified. Because it was unimaginable for him to have an eternity apart from you. 
you. And so he went through all of this because he, he couldn't even endure the thought of, of us being in hell. It's incredible. That's really incredible. Good. Other thoughts? Or questions? The conscience. Say yes. Yes. Oh yeah, I said that. I said the devil didn't have any seed, but it says your seed. So what is the seed of the devil? It's probably uh, sin and death. That's what he caught. That's his offspring. But it's not his his children. It's just what he causes. So he has spiritual offspring, but he can't have children. And so the Lord is kind of poking it in the devil's eye. That probably also has something to do with why the Lord chose circumcision as one of the sacraments of the Old Testament. It was pointing back to the promise of the, of the seed. And it is an interesting thing, I mean, just to, to review the transgender stuff a little bit, that some of the transgender folks will talk about circumcision as an example of proto-transgender surgery. Can you imagine? But I had one a friend, in fact, Pastor Denzer, who, he's a chaplain at the International Center, and he told me that he did a Bible study for the LWML group about circumcision. I said, you did not. <laughs> that was dumb. But I guess he did, and I guess only half of them walked out. <laughs> but he made this point. He says there's a difference between cutting against nature versus cutting with nature. So that, so that the circumcision in the Old Testament was a confession of the seed. And Luther makes a big deal out of how, how circumcision also points to grace alone, especially for the ladies who couldn't be circumcised but were included in the promise. There's no work that they could do, and yet they were included in the promise. God be praised. Uh, maybe this is too much information, but the different, you know, uh, there's two signs in ASL. So the sign for fellowship is this, and the, and the sign for circumcision is this. So he said, oh, it's time for fellowship. <laughs> you got to be careful with that. One of the worst ASL mistake I made was... I was praying for our member Richard, and I was trying to pray that the Lord would give Richard a wise doctor. And instead I prayed that the Lord would give Richard an Egyptian deaconess. <laughs> Which they thought was pretty funny. So I went to see him in the hospital, he was recovering from surgery, and I said, well, was there an Egyptian deaconess anywhere? He said, no. Other thoughts? Yes, sir. about repentance and the gift of repentance we can't repent ourselves we have to be given the gift of repentance so repentance is really two and a half things there's two parts to repentance the first is contrition 
And that's worked in us by the Holy Spirit through the law. So the law shows us our sinfulness, that we deserve God's wrath. In fact, can I make a distinction here? This has to do with what we're talking about with the conscience. A lot of people will talk about a troubled conscience. Let's, let's distinguish between a troubled conscience and a terrified conscience. So a troubled conscience, most people have. I mean, you hear most people say, and people will say this all the time, well, nobody's perfect. The error is human. Everybody makes mistakes. And that, and that is saying, if you were to ask someone if they're perfect, if they've perfectly kept the law, most people say, no, they haven't. So most people have a troubled conscience, a conscience that recognizes their own guilt. But, the, the, but then the question is, you say, well, what do you deserve because of your breaking up the law? And that's where you see the difference between a troubled and terrified conscience. Now, this is not a technical definition. I think this is just a, a thumb, thumbnail heuristic. But the, the difference is that I might have a troubled conscience. I know I've done things wrong, but I don't think it's that bad. Like we were in, the, the best example I know to think is we were in Aurora when the guy came and shot up all the people at the Batman movie and murdered all the people there. So could you imagine he's in, he's in court and the judge says, well, how do you plead, innocent or guilty? And he says, oh, I'm guilty. I did it. I murdered all those people. Oh, okay. So then the judge says, well, we, we should, uh, you need to be sentenced. What do you think your sentence should be? He says, oh, boy, I mean, I murdered 13 people in cold blood plotted it out. Did it. I booby-trapped my apartment so that the police would be killed when they went to find it. I did all this. It was really bad. I think that I should have at least two weeks in jail. And you're like, aha. <laughs> you don't realize how bad what you did is, do you? You're guilty. But of what? And a terrified conscience knows that what we deserve because of our sin is God's eternal wrath and punishment. So people might say, oh yeah, well, I've, I've sinned, surely I've sinned. But what do you deserve because of your sin? God's rejection? God's anger? God's wrath? Most people don't think that at all. So a terrified conscience is a conscience that realizes not only that it's broken the law of God, but that it deserves, because of that, his eternal wrath. Excuse me, i got one coffee. <coughs> How do we say in the old confession, I deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. That's what we're saying, because of our sin. So that's the first part of repentance, which is contrition, or a terrified conscience that recognizes that not only we are sinners, but our, as sinners we deserve God's wrath. And, and, I, and I think, by the way, that it's one of the problems with the preaching of the law today is that it preaches for a troubled conscience, not for a terrified conscience. That the wrath and anger of God is never preached. So then if the wrath of God is never preached, then the cross doesn't make any sense. Like, why would Jesus have to go through all that trouble of suffering and dying if we're not that bad in the first place? Then the second part of repentance is faith, which is worked by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. So God comes and he preaches the gospel to us, the kindness of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Spirit uses that word of the gospel to create and sustain faith in us so that we can rejoice in God's kindness and mercy and love. And then the thing that follows repentance is the fruit of repentance, which is love and patience and suffering. And one of the big problems in the, excuse me, in the church today is that we've confused repentance with the fruit of repentance. So most churches, if you hear them preaching repentance, what they're really preaching is the fruits. Like John the Baptist at the River Jordan. 
He said, who warned you to bear fruit in accord to repentance? In other words, the changed life of the Christian is the fruit of repentance, not repentance itself. It's what comes later. And if you want the fruit of repentance, you have to first have repentance. You can't get it any other way. You can't go and, and glue an apple on your Christmas tree and say, look, it's a pineapple. took a while to hit. <laughs> I'm the, I've got to think of something punny now. I can't get there. Groggy. So, um, something about fur. There'd be a fur in there. Fur joke. Can't get it. So, so you can't do it. You can't just, you can't just put the fruit, like tape them. To, you know, tie a banana to the tree branch and say, no, you got to be concerned with the tree and then the fruit comes along. So repentance first and then the fruit of repentance. And it's all the work of God. It, only, it, it can only be worked by God, the Holy Spirit, through law and gospel. So repentance is what happens to us. Repentance is the reaction of law and gospel having its proper work on us. The law, contrition, the gospel, faith. And remember that, we, so sometimes we think of repentance in terms of contrition, but that's only the first half. So the, you, you can look at examples of people who only got to the first half of repentance, and they're disastrous. Like Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament. Or like Judas in the New Testament. He was sorry for his sin, but he didn't mix his sorrow with faith. So he ended in despair. Good. Other questions? Yes, sir. <clears throat> It's always a command to repent. It comes to us as a command. Um, uh, and, and the example is rend your hearts. But th- that especially is... So that command is against this idea of pro forma repentance. So it's rend your hearts and not your garments. So don't think you've repented if you've just torn your shirt. It's the heart that matters. And that's the point. Like... you. You can't, you can't turn your heart. The Lord has to do it. The best verse, I think, for this is Psalm 80. It's hard to see in the English. You want to look? Psalm 80. It's the theme of Psalm 80. <laughs> oh, let me try again here. <coughs> Excuse me. Whoa. I don't know how to, how to get it into better English, Psalm 80. I guess it says, turn us, O Lord, restore us, O Lord. First, look at Psalm 80, verse 3. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Then, verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And then, verse 19, restore us, O Lord, God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. That word restore is the word repent, shuv, turn. And uh, it's and it's the Lord who's turning, the Lord who's who's reorienting us, the Lord who's showing us our sin, 
and showing us his salvation. So apart from his initiative, there is no repentance. So, and, and there's something too, this is a theological thing that's pretty important, is the, is the, um, the command to do something does not imply the ability to do it. So just because the Lord commands us to do something doesn't mean that we can. For, for example, when the Lord says believe, on our own we are unbelievers and we can't believe. So the Lord has to give us obedience to his own command, like he did to the stars when he told them to shine. That was a big part of the debate in the Reformation, by the way, because Erasmus said, when Erasmus was arguing for free will against Luther, he made that explicit argument. He said the command to do something implies the ability to do it. So if God gives us a command, then we must be able to keep that command. Otherwise, what kind of God is he? A cruel tyrant, right? Imagine walking down your neighborhood sidewalk and your neighbor is out there with his five-year-old son and he says to him, dunk that basketball or you don't get dinner. And what kind of creep is this? The, guy, the kid is five years old. He can jump like three inches off the ground. There's no way he can dunk the basketball. Why is he commanding him to do it? Dunk the basketball or you don't get dinner. And Erasmus argued, I mean, I don't think Erasmus argued the basketball example. Erasmus preferred rugby probably or soccer. <laughs> Mini golf. What would Erasmus have liked? What's that? Javelin, yeah. Something kind of dainty. He was kind of prissy. Well, you know, you got a lot to kind of make up for. He was the son of a monk and a nun, you know, so you don't know who your parents are. He was always trying to prove himself. Just, you know, he just took a little extra time at the mirror. You know, Erasmus type. So Erasmus makes this argument, if God commands us to do things we can't do, he must be a tyrant. Well, Luther says to Erasmus, the only problem with that argument, Erasmus, is the Bible. <laughs> that tells us that God, in fact, does command us to do things that we can't do precisely so that we know that we can't do them. And here's the story. It turns out that this five, how old was the kid? Five? This five-year-old kid, uh, before, was standing on his chair at the dinner table and saying to his mom and his dad, I don't need you. I don't have to follow your rules. I can do whatever I want. I'm the greatest basketball player ever to live. And I'm going to go into the NBA tomorrow. And I'm going to win the slam dunk contest. And, I, and I'm going to be out on my own so I don't have to listen to anything that you say. So the father marches him out to the front yard with the basketball and says, dunk it, or you don't get dinner. Now you see, the point is that the Lord will give us the law precisely so that we know that we are sinners. Paul says it like this, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So that it's, it's a weird thing too, because you would think, you would think, that the thing that we would know about ourselves is that we're sinners, but we don't. And in a way, God be praised. 
in a way that God hides from us the depth of our own sinfulness. Otherwise, we'd never go out grocery shopping. You know, we'd never, we'd be horrified at ourselves and everybody else if we saw the true corruption of our nature. So it's hidden from us. But we, that means we have to believe the Bible when it says that we're sinners all the way through. So that our only hope is in Christ. Oh, good question. Very good question. Other thoughts or questions? Let's let's go to let's go to Hebrews two via Revelation twenty. I think we might wind down with this. <clears throat> Revelation twenty is a beautiful description of the church, but most people miss it because most people think that Revelation twenty is a description of the future, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Most people think that we that we're still waiting for that thousand years. Most people are pre-millennial or even post-millennial, but that, that that means we're not in the millennium yet. We're still waiting for it to happen. We understand, though, that that this is a description of the church. Verse one: I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil in Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, some people get mad at us Lutherans because they say, you don't take the thousand years literally. You say that the thousand years refers to a long time. A thousand years so far has been 1,990 years. That's not a thousand. To them, we say, well, look, do you take the chain literally? What kind of chain is that? Do you take this pit literally? What kind of, how can you have a bottomless pit? That's a tube. You know, it's not a pit. The whole thing is meant to be a picture for us. And especially the thousand years. I mean, the thousand years probably refers back to that Psalm of Moses. A day is like a thousand years. Uh, and that, Psalm 90, is probably referring to Melchizedek. No. Who was the oldest man? Yeah, Melchizedek. Thank you. Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old. 969. Now, if any of you have lived to be like 95, how many of you are 95? Okay, just checking. <laughs> well, once you get to 95, your family starts to ask, hey, you think you'll make 100? And when you get to 96, 97, 90, you think you'll make 100? And then when you make a hundred, I've never met a person who's a hundred years old who doesn't say, Pastor, what is God doing keeping me around this long? They are ready to go. Anyway, you got to think that that's how it was with Methuselah. Once he gets to 950, hey, you think you'll make a thousand? Ah, probably not. 960? He's older than anybody else? I think you're, you're 40 years. What's for, when you're 960 years old, what's 40 years? 969? In fact, when you, look at, when you look at the text of Genesis, it's really amazing because uh, Methuselah is... It's almost like the Lord has indicated that when Methuselah dies, the flood will come. And his long age is an indication of God's patience. But he never made it to a thousand. 
no matter how strong the strongest of us were, no one ever made it to a thousand. So when Moses is writing this psalm about man's mortality, he says, For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. You get it? The Lord is saying, oh, look how impressive you think you are. How many of you have ever lived to be a thousand? The best of you, 969, didn't even get that close. And Peter brings that verse up, remember when he talks about the patience of the Lord before the coming of Jesus before the end. He says, the Lord is not, uh, how does he say is, is not, uh, how come I can't think of the word, slow to fulfill his promises, like some, or slack. The Lord is not slack to keep his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. For remember, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, the thousand years in the Bible is the time of God's patience, while he waits for more Christians to become Christians before he sends the, the Lord back. So when we get to the Revelation, we're like, oh, a thousand years, we know what that's about. A thousand years. And how do we know the thousand years started? What's the mark of the beginning of the thousand years? He, the angel, laid a hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Why? So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. After these things he must be released for a little while. So that so the thousand years is the is the, the beginning of the thousand years is the binding of the devil. Now the, the Bible teaches us that the devil is bound when Jesus dies on the cross. So that is the mark of the thousand years, Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and so that we are living in the time of the devil being bound, that, that he can no longer deceive the nations. That is the clear, for example, 1 John 5, 8, For this reason the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Remember the parable that Jesus tells of the, uh, of the strong man? It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's all slightly different in each time, so maybe Jesus told it three times. He loved telling this parable so much. He says there was a strong man who ruled over his house, and when he ruled over his house, his goods were at peace. But when a stronger than him came and bound him, he plundered the house. Well, who's the strong man? The devil. And what's his house, this world? And what are his goods? Us. But who's the stronger one? Jesus. And what does the stronger one do? He binds the strong man so that he can loot his house. You are plunder from the devil's house. <laughs> Jesus has rescued you from that darkness, transferred you into the kingdom of his life. And he, but to do that, he had to first bind the devil. So let's look at Hebrews 2. This is my favorite of verses, but it's a hard one. Boy, is it a hard one. Hebrews 2.14 Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that means that you and I are have, a, have this mortal nature. We have our mortality. We have flesh and blood. He 
himself likewise shared in the same. Why? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, you've got to read that really carefully. Through death, Jesus destroyed who? The one who had the power of death. And who's that? The devil. So Jesus, through his death, destroyed the devil. And, and why does that matter? It's because the devil had the power of death. Now what does that mean, the power of death? We can think of it in the context of the martyrs if we want to, right? Remember what the proconsul would do? They would call the Christians up there and they would say, Hey, you have to say Lord Caesar or else I'll burn you. That's the power of death. That coercive power to get people to commit idolatry or else they die. And it's what's behind all of our, well, probably most of our sins, especially as we suffer persecution, is the fear of death. In fact, to be afraid to die is to be enslaved by the devil. Now that's why this is so hard. But look at what it says in the next verse. To release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The the devil presents to us the freedom of licentiousness. Do whatever you want. Sin, act however you want. That's the freedom the devil offers. The Lord offers us the freedom of the fear of death. Now this means, so I said this the other day and Carrie said, Brian, you can't say this. I'll tell you what I can't say. I said, if you are afraid to die, you are demon possessed. Carrie said, now you can't say that. (laughs) Because we think of demon possession as a different sort of thing. But the idea is pretty close to right. If you are afraid to die, you are in bondage to the devil. You are held captive to the devil. That's one of the reasons why, remember Revelation 12? It says they overcame him by the word and the blood, and they they did not love their lives unto death. They weren't afraid to die. So Jesus, through his death, set us free from the fear of death. And why? Because we know that on the other side of death is judgment. And that if we were to go and face the judgment with our own resources and our own good works, that we would be doomed. But the Lord has not set us to face the judgment based on our own resources. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has knocked the teeth out of death. He's taken away the power of death. He's made death, not a cave, but a highway that leads to God. So that the Christian is no longer afraid to die. And that Jesus, by his death, has destroyed the power of the devil. Now, at this point, you say, okay, I see what you're saying, I see the words there on the page, and I believe them because I'm a Christian, but this is hard because I also watched the news last night. (laughs) And it does not seem to me like the devil is bound. In fact, it looks to me like the devil is as loose as he's ever been. I like what it says here, but I talked to my kids the other day, and the things that they're going through does not seem like the devil is bound and destroyed, but rather he's doing better than ever, right? So we have a problem, because what it looks like in the world is not what it says here. So what do we do with that? We are not, here's here's a phrase, we are not look-aroundists. In other words, we do not determine what is true by looking around. 
We determine what is true through what God's Word says. But we can go even further. If you're there in Hebrews chapter 2, go backwards about three inches to verse 6. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? That's Psalm 8. I like how the writer of Hebrews says, It says somewhere. (laughs) He can't remember. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Jesus was made lower than the angels so that he might be exalted to sit at the right hand of God the Father and rule and reign over all things. All things are put under his feet. The devil, the demons, death, hell, all things are under his feet. Your afflictions, your sufferings, your enemies, all. But look at the very next verse. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. All things are under the feet of Jesus, but we don't see it yet. The devil is bound. We don't see it yet. The devil's destroyed. The demons are overthrown. But we don't see it yet. All your sins are taken away. But we don't see it yet. It's like the reverse of lightning and thunder. You know how that goes? Like the lightning crashes. You see the lightning and then you have to wait for a couple of seconds. And then you hear the thunder. It's the same event, but the sight of it and the sound of it are separated. Uh, we always used to, when we were kids, was this true? You, we would count one Mississippi, two, but to see how many miles away the thunder was. That, is that true? Because uh, I don't know if that's a true, accurate thing, but that was how we did it. One time, <laughs> me and, and the closest I ever got to getting struck by lightning was me and Andrew were in the backyard one time. It was, it was this is in Colorado, it was raining like crazy. And me and Andrew were standing on the back porch just watching the rain. It was, I mean, I'd never seen rain like that. And all of a sudden, kaboom! The tree in the backyard, like 20 feet away from us, got struck by lightning. And flaming bark flew like all over the yard. It was this huge, big explosion. Boom! The whole house struck. And me and Andrew jumped like two feet in the air. And I started running around the backyard like a crazy man. I was like, "Wah!" I mean, it, it just it like wires you up like, boom. When it's that close, there's no difference. But if it's far away, you see it and then and you hear it. Well, the, if you could take that picture and just reverse it for what Jesus has done. In his death on the cross, in his resurrection, he's destroyed the devil and we hear it. But we don't see it until the last day. And on the last day, like a flash, we'll see the devil destroyed and overcome. 
and Jesus ruling and reigning. But we don't see it yet. And this is hard. You know, I mentioned how it would be nice if Jesus would have been transfigured on the cross. That would have been the right time. It would be nice if Jesus would be with us right now and transfigured. If we could see him sitting in glory on the throne. We just get a little glimpse of it. To know that everything's alright. To know that he's still ruling and reigning like he said he is. Because after all, we look around and it seems to us like maybe he's not. But this is why, this is what we've been given in this life. To walk by faith and not by sight. Look at what it says here. We, verses verse 9. Well, let me go back to the second half of verse 8. Hebrews 2. We do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Dear Saints, Jesus does not want you to see him today according to his glory. Maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight, he'll come back for us. Or next week, or in the middle of the Super Bowl. Imagine that for halftime. Angel trumpets. Maybe next year, maybe another couple hundred. It's, but not today, not now. What he wants you to see is him is his humility, his suffering on the cross, his dying, his bleeding and dying for you. That's the vision that he's given to us to sustain us. Now I don't know why. I, I don't know why the Lord doesn't give us a glimpse maybe once every hundred years of the throne room of heaven to make sure that he's still there ruling and reigning all things for the sake of the church. But he hasn't. And it's because he loves us and he knows best. So this is how we are given to live in this world. We, we know that this world has set itself against God and his glory. We know that the devil is roaring, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. We know that the flesh is set against God. We know that Jesus has overcome these things in his death and in his resurrection, and that now he rules and reigns all things for the sake of the church, so that whatever's going on is because Jesus has determined that that would go on. That we can receive these things from his hands. You know, we look at it and we're like, man, COVID, that was tough. Thanks, Jesus, for giving us COVID. Or suffering and death. Thanks, Jesus, for giving us that. Or whatever political ruler or uh, whatever we have. That Jesus has given us that too. That Jesus has governed and ruled all things for the... And he's done it all for your sake. We just don't see it yet. We don't see his glory. We are given to cling to the cross. It's the nature of our life here below. We are like Peter though, right? We want... Hey, it's good, Lord, to be here. Let us make some tabernacles. We can just camp out. We can just stay with this glory business, right? That would be nice. And Jesus says, no. Here's my cross. Here's my empty tomb. And here's the promise that I rule and reign. And if that's all Jesus wants us to have, 
That is all that you need. That's all I need. And so we rejoice and give thanks that that's what we have. So God hides himself. He's always hiding himself behind the opposites. He's always working in such a way that what we hear with our ears seems very different than what we see with our eyes. But that's what it means to be a Christian. I'll give you just a couple of examples and I think we can wind down and see what questions you have. Wait, let me say, check the time here. Oh yeah, I bet you guys will ask a lot of questions. Remember, remember when God came to Abraham and he said to Abraham, who was an old man, how old was he, like 90, 70 at the time? He says, hey, uh, you're going to have as many children as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And how many does he have? None. So he trusts God, he believes God, he and Sarah, I mean Sarah was a little slower to trust God. She, remember, laughed. Why did you laugh? <laughs> the Lord said, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. That's such a great story. I'll be back next year, you'll be pregnant. And so the Lord grants this promise, Abraham, who has the promise that his children are going to be as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, has one boy, Isaac. And the Lord comes to him and he says, you know Isaac, that son of yours, the one that you love? Why don't you sacrifice him for me? Lord, you're the one that promised that he was going to be the one. It was your promise that through Isaac all the nations are going to be blessed. And now you want me to take him up on the mountain and kill him? You know, that's the first time that the word love is used in the Bible when it describes how Abraham feels about Isaac. Your child whom you love. Amazing. So that God works against his promises. Or think about this. We're studying this in the life of Jacob in our worldwide Bible study. Here's Jacob. who's He's got his twin Esau. And, and Esau and, uh, and Isaac are all about giving the promise to Esau, right? And, and yet the Lord had said, no, the promise is going to go to Jacob. So Jacob sells the birthright. It doesn't matter. Jacob goes in to get a blessing from Isaac. It doesn't matter. In fact, you remember, you remember when they do the hair on the, on the arms of Jacob so they can fool Isaac because he's starting to lose his sight? You know how old uh, Jacob is at that time? 77 years old. I always think of him as like a young kid, right? He's 77 years old. And how old is Esau? 77. They're twins. It was a trick question. Right. So, so there's, but remember Esau already has two wives and a bunch of kids. And Jacob has nothing. He's not even married yet. He's 77 years old. He goes in and Jacob gives him the blessing. And so now he has it. Esau sold him the birthright. His father gave him the birthright. They've set it all up. And then what happens? He has to go live in the wilderness. Can you just like pause there with Jacob as he lays his head down on what would be Bethel the next day on, the, on this rock pillow. And instead of having a king's staff, he's got a, like a hobo stick. <laughs> Instead of having a crown, he's sleeping on the ground. Instead of having a throne and a family, he's just him. It's just this 77-year-old guy sleeping in the wilderness. And he's the one that has all the promises. But that's how the Lord works. That's how he does stuff. I'm going to read you a, a Luther quote on this. Then this is one of the wonderful examples of the divine government by which God shows that he requires confidence in his word and promises 
even if the opposite of what is contained in the promise happens. He does so in order that we may accustom ourselves to trust in God in, th in the things that are absent and are placed far out of our sight. For Jacob has the promised blessing, but he has it only in accord with faith, which is a matter of things that are hoped for, not of the things that are seen. Hebrews 11. Thus I believe that God who promises, loves me, has regard for me, cares for me, will hear me, and this I regard as something present and at hand, even though it is not visible. Therefore Jacob lives in faith alone. He's wretchedly cast out. He's lonely and destitute. He has nothing in his hand but a staff and a morsel of bread in a little sack. But he has the promises of God. So we are set in this world to, to live before God who always hides himself and gives himself to us only according to his word. Well, you guys all say, sounds easy. <laughs> I don't think it is, but it was never meant to be. The Lord, for, again, for whatever reason, wants us just to hold on to the vision of the cross while we wait for his revelation and glory. And that's what he's given to us. Okay. That's what I wanted to talk about. So let's see what questions you have. You guys, it's your job now to make this make sense and practical. Yes, ma'am. Why do we say the devil's bound and also that he's prowling around? It seems like the two are very different than one another. Uh, there's a line in Luther that I can never find. There's a lot of Luther stuff that is very hard to find. Like where he's quoted with stuff he didn't say. Like, like there's one time that Luther said, you can't trust everything you read on the internet. <laughs> I haven't found that one yet. Or Abraham Lincoln said that too, I think. He got it from Luther. Uh, but Luther says, the devil is on a long leash. So he prowls, but he's leashed. And, and when we think of the devil, and I don't know a good way to think about this, but when we think of the devil, we have to think in terms of theological cause and effect, not necessarily chronological cause and effect. So we had in the break earlier the question of when was the devil kicked out of heaven? Well, the answer is when Jesus died. The answer is when you were baptized. The answer is every time the absolution is spoken. So the devil being kicked out of heaven is a theological reality. The devil being bound is a theological reality. So for those of us who are hidden in Christ, the devil has no authority over us. But for those of us who are, who are outside the blood of Christ, the devil is running roughshod. All right. I don't know how to, that's a good accusation, it sounds mystic agnostic, it's, it, it, I'll work on it. I don't know how to teach it better, but, um, because it's just what it says, this is the problem, is it says it but we don't see it. So how can something be true but not seen? Uh, it's because we're waiting. And it's kind of frustrating, isn't it? Remember that verse in Isaiah 40? 
where it says, Blessed are those who wait on the Lord. They will mount up on wings like eagles. I, I don't... It's like, Lord, you could have put a different verb there. Like, blessed are those who call on the Lord. Or blessed are those who pray to the Lord. Or blessed are those who trust in the Lord. But it's not. It says, blessed are those who wait on the Lord. And so we are waiters. Every single prayer that we pray is an unanswered prayer. At least for a while. And every single promise that God gives is an unfulfilled promise, at least for a while. So our lives are lived between the speaking of God and the coming to be of what He speaks. So we're in this big pause of the, between the, the thunder of the resurrection and the lightning flash of glory on the last day. Yeah, I, I don't know how to say it any... Uh, if you guys have Pastor Clemmer invite me back next year and then I'll know how to say it better I'll think about it for a year and get back to you I saw another hand go yes sir Questions about how do we react to death? Because so if we were just to ask, is death a good thing or a bad thing? You say, well, yes. We were never intended to die. The Bible calls death the last enemy. So death is our enemy. That's why the Lord sets us to constantly fight against death. For example, we're people of life. We march for the babies. We want pro-life legislation. We, we are against murder of every, of every kind. We're against suicide. You would think, if, if someone just said, well, heaven is better than earth, so that means Christians would be killing themselves all the time. But no, Christians do not self-harm. Uh, unless they're acting not Christian. So that the Christian is set in the world to fight against death until the moment when death comes and then to receive death as a friend. Because the Lord has changed death, which is our last and final enemy, and he's made it into a gift to us. So we have a bit of a subtle uh, relationship to death, but I suppose it's the same thing. It's like if you look at the world, you say, is the world good or bad? And we say, well, yes. Or you look at people. Are people good or bad? Oh, uh, yes. So, oh, sorry. Gotcha. So, we, it's a good work to mourn. And this is important. Remember when Jesus learned that Lazarus died and he wept? Oh, how he loves him. So if you want to think about that, that mourning is the shape that love takes when the object of our love is gone. And this is important that we preach as Christians that we are also mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. So we're a mourning people. We're fighting against death. But we realize that Jesus has overcome it. So now at last it comes to us as a, as a gift. And we don't... 
so that, I mean, it must be kind of confusing to the world to look at Christians. Because we go and march and we're pro-life and we're anti-murder and we're anti-euthanasia and we're anti-all these things. And then, wait, I said anti-pro-life, didn't I? We're pro-pro-life. Anyway, we are, we're for, we're pro-life, we're anti-euthanasia, we're all these things. And then we also say that death comes as a gift from Jesus. Well, which is it? Well, both. Yeah. So we have to, there's a I don't think it's nuanced, but there's a way that we, that we see it in this complexity. Very good question. Yes, sir. Maybe we know they don't believe in Jesus. We try to speak to them. We pray for them, especially we pray for them uh, in, in the terms of those long-distance prayers, the miracles that Jesus worked. So Jesus worked a couple of long-distance miracles. Remember the, the, Canaan, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was demon-possessed? Jesus healed her from a distance. Or the uh, synagogue ruler's son, he healed at a distance. Or, or servant. No, no. The centurion's servant, he healed at a distance. Remember, Jesus says, I'll come with you. And he says, no, just speak the word and it'll be healed. So we pray for our family and friends who don't know Christ, especially in the terms of, Lord, you work these long-distance miracles. Work this way. Give them faith. It's good. I also think it's good. Do you guys do this? to have You have the names of the people that you're praying for, that the Lord would give them faith in your pocket when you come to the Lord's Supper? That's just a good thing to do. Because you're bringing them and saying, Lord, this is on you. You love them more than I do. So they need faith in you and salvation. So please give it to them. So you're offering them to the Lord. And we trust that the Lord loves them even more than we do. Sometimes we're praying also that the Lord provides opportunity to speak to them. Sometimes we're praying that the Lord would provide opportunity for someone else to speak to them. Because obviously they're not listening to me. I don't know if that... That's a lot of times how I pray for my family... Um, that I think about and worry about that the Lord would provide someone else because it's too hard for them to hear it from me so they need to send them someone else yes ma'am yeah I think we should so the question is is the demons with the devil and I think the, the whole realm of darkness so wherever the devil is the demons go so they're all cast down so the whole horde of them are neutered. And remember how it said it in Revelation 20. This is really quite nice. So they can no longer deceive the nations. So the specific binding of the devil is, is, is in this way that the devil is no longer a nation deceiver. So, so that there's people everywhere who believe in Jesus. It's quite amazing. The church is scattered throughout the world. If you were to go back like a hundred years before Jesus, there's like... 20 Christians and they're all kind of hanging around Galilee but then you go you fast forward 100 years after Jesus and there's Christians filling the whole world so that deep bondage that the devil had on the world is broken in the resurrection of Jesus ah good other questions yes ma'am
Right. Yeah. Yeah. The question of an eight-year-old child, how did the devil turn bad if everything was good? We get a couple of hints. The Bible doesn't say too much about it. Because sometimes, you know, there's the... Uh, there's a burden in knowing something. But the devil's chief sin was pride. And so it seems like it, the creation of man spurred the devil on to pride he, that he exalted himself above God and for that had to be cast out. So the devil's fall happened before the fall of Adam and Eve. Now what's really interesting is that when Adam and Eve fell, all the rest of the wor- world fell. And why? is because the devil didn't have dominion over the whole world, Adam and Eve did. So the reason why the dogs and the cats die is not because the devil fell, but because Adam and Eve did, it's specifically because Adam did. Um, we don't sing all mankind fell and Eve's fall, but Adam, because of that dominion. So the Lord subjects all of creation to bondage because of that original fall. Good. Maybe one more? Yes, sir. <clears throat> yes. I don't know. Uh, questions about the talking serpent. The, remember, it was the devil was a dragon. He was a serpent with legs. So, and was it the? devil who went into him to give him the ability to talk or did the dragon was he like a smog kind of character who could talk in the like the Lord of the Rings or something uh, we don't know the answer to that we, some, some of the old church fathers like to talk about how Adam and Eve could have communicated with the animals and maybe there was an art that even Noah had to communicate better with the animals but I like this when Luther's talking about the fall of the sin, he says, before the fall, Adam could have looked at the animals and he would have understood them perfectly. Like, he would have seen the, the essence of a parrot and known just why God created the parrot to be so parody and would name it parrot and dolphins and all the dolphinness of the dolphins and everything. And then after the fall, all Adam can do is look at the animals and say, can I eat it or will it eat me? <laughs> It's just this, ah, that we're so, so much was lost after the fall. But I don't know if we know more than that. It's a good question. Uh, Luther on Genesis 1 and 2 is pretty amazing. You read it and you're like, wow, that's genius. And then you read the next paragraph and you're like, wow, that's kooky. That's a lot of fun. The, the, Luther had the medieval idea that fish could just generate out of nothing. Like if you had a pond like this, that, like a fish would show up in it. I don't know. Yes, yes, ma'am. about free will and what do we say about the will one of the I think one of the most helpful things to think of is this. some of the Lutherans um, pin this down and they really took it from St. Augustine that the will of man is found in four different states and those states are before the fall after the fall after baptism and after the resurrection so before the fall Adam and Eve had a free will they were free to sin or not sin 
But then after the fall, we don't have a free will. We can only sin. Uh, non passe non peccarum. Not possible not to sin. After the resurrection, I know I skipped one. I'll come back to it. After the resurrection, we won't be able to sin. Non passe peccarum. We won't be able to do anything wrong. Can you imagine that? You won't even be able to want to sin. Oh, come Lord Jesus. What is the state of our will now? After baptism. A lot of evangelicals say that our will is returned to the state that it was before the fall. We can sin or not sin. But we recognize that we in fact have two wills. The will of the flesh and the will of the spirit. And they're fighting against each other. So the flesh can only sin and the spirit can only serve God. And they're at war with one another. So that's, that's how we think of that. It's really great. Thank you. Okay, guys. I hope I haven't cooked you too much. Uh, thank, I really appreciate your attention. This is really a, quite a gift. And your patience with me, too. I hope I wasn't too goofball-y or delirious or anything. But I, I really appreciate um, your patience with me as well. Uh, and, and the invitation. And I'm looking forward to coming back next year, Pastor Clemmer. That'll be great. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> So thanks to all of you for coming out today and sticking around for the whole day. Uh, again, thanks for Pastor Bo- uh, Wolf Mueller. Such a wonderful presentation. Uh, really, really helpful stuff there. Again, it's all available online. If you want to go back and, and listen to it again, watch more. Um, the video will be on YouTube through the church's YouTube channel. Also, as soon as I can get it edited down and, and, and uploaded to the, to the church's website, it will be on our podcast as well if you just want to listen to the audio. Um, I see so many, so many of you have taken like pages and pages of notes or just like keep going. So you probably have a transcript already if you want to just like make copies and email. <laughs> uh, safe travels to you all. We have uh, over 10 different congregations represented, uh, three different states, four if you count Texas. Uh, Texas, has just, Texas gets two votes there. Uh, so yeah, thank you. Thank you all. Thanks again for all my volunteers for helping in. Uh, another round of applause for Pastor Wolfmuller. Blessing. Yeah, give us a prayer and blessing. Prayer, safe travels to you all. Let's 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 pray, shall we? Uh, could you would you stand? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, deliver to us a good and clean conscience by your word and kindness. Forgive us our sins and give us the confidence that we'll stand before you in glory by the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. Create in us the sure, uh, confident, bold hopefulness that trusts in your Son, Jesus Christ, rules and reigns all things for the sake of the Church. Rescue us from the fear of death and grant that by the word and the blood we would overcome all the assaults of the devil. Set us as lights in the midst of this uh, dark and crooked generation that more and more would come to know your wisdom, your kindness, and your love for us in Christ and rejoice with us in thanksgiving. Granted by your spirit, we would know our sin, know your mercy, and give thanks to you for 
for all the gifts that you've given. Make us to be thankful people. We give you thanks for this day and for the time to rejoice in your truth. Send your holy angels to watch over us as we travel home. Give us joy in our various callings. Delight in hearing your word and receiving the body and blood tomorrow. That we would rejoice in you until we see you face to face. For we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, the same who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his way shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.